0: Uh, But I hope you guys have had a very happy new year. Guys, it is now time for us to say that 2020 is over. Is that a sigh of relief off your shoulders? Now we're just going into 2021 and there's no telling what's coming with 2021, am I right? All we know is that the Lord will be with us and he will guide us and he will protect us no matter what may come. Uh, We even saw that in 2020, that regardless of what happened in 2020, He was there to lead us and to guide us no matter what we faced. And so I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do in 2021, Uh, but for now, I'm also excited about this morning, and for us to continue uh, the series that we've been going through in the book of Matthew, we're going to be picking back up uh, in Matthew chapter 27. So if you guys want to go ahead and open up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27, that would be great. Um, but as we get into this uh, chapter, you guys know how I am. I love context. I love seeing where we once were to how we got to where we are now. And so since we've uh, taken a couple of weeks uh, during the Christmas season and then the new year away from this series, I thought it'd be good for us just to do a quick recap, especially for those of you guys who... This is your first time uh, coming this morning, or you just haven't been able to make it every week to recap what we've talked about so far through the book of Matthew. So, when we begin this book, uh, chapters one through nine, what we saw in these first nine chapters was the revelation of Jesus. Jesus was being revealed to the people, his person was revealed, whether it was his ancestry, his advent. His ambassador and John the Baptist, and ultimately his enemy was revealed, Satan. We also saw uh, the purpose of Jesus revealed, his method of ministry, his mandate for the people. We also saw the burdens and behaviors of a disciple, of what that would be uh, like for us, and also for his disciples during this time, of what it would mean to follow after him. We saw the power of Jesus revealed. We saw his power over despair, over disease, over disasters, over demons, right? We saw all his power on full display. And then we picked up in chapters 10 through 16 where Jesus was being, would then be resisted. We saw the resistance towards Jesus. We saw in chapter 10, him himself foretelling his resistance and how he was going to have to prepare for his service and ultimately for his sufferings. And we also saw his resistance being felt in chapter 11 through the ministry of John the Baptist and ultimately through his ministry with the disciples, with those men coming up against his message of the kingdom that is coming. We also saw the resistance and how it was focused in on Jesus and on the disciples and ultimately John the Baptist again with, from the malice of the Pharisees and them rejecting his parables and his teachings and standing up against him. And we ultimately saw the ultimate resistance when they put John the Baptist to death. Right? And then we also saw how he faced the resistance and how Jesus in his boldness and his sovereignty stood up against those who were against the kingdom, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time who were standing against them. And then we zoom on through chapter 17 through 27, which is where we ultimately pick up today. But in chapter 16 through 25, we see that uh, the, rejection, the rejection of Jesus begins. We saw the shadow of his rejection in chapter 16 through 25 through the private discussions that he had with his disciples about the coming rejection and how he would be uh, betrayed and handed over and ultimately be crucified. And We also saw the public disputes with the Jewish leaders and how Jesus once again would boldly stand up against them and, and, and declare the truth of the coming kingdom. Which leads us up to today and how we now see the unfolding of his rejection. And what I mean by that is is that we see the ultimate deception of Judas in chapter 26 and his betrayal. To now, this chapter, we're going to see how Jesus not only gets rejected and, and turned over, but he is going to be standing before trial. And so... We are at the climax of this story, of this narrative of Matthew. We are at the climax of Jesus' rejection. Essentially, what we are seeing is God in the hands of angry sinners, which is ultimately what the title is today. Talk about fire and brimstone, right? Welcome to 2021. All right. I'm just kidding. So. So the, again, the picture that we're seeing here is that Judas finally fulfills his, roles at, his role as betrayer and traitor of Jesus, right? So they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. He walks up to Jesus with, with the, a crowd of soldiers from the temple, and he gives Jesus the kiss, right? And in that moment, the, the soldiers come. They take Jesus away. They arrest him and bring him before the chief priests and the elders for questioning and false trial. And so while standing before Caiaphas, the high priest... He is also standing before all these false witnesses and they are now bearing false witness against Jesus and, and how he is a blasphemer and how he is saying that he is going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days and all of these big statements, right? All the while, Peter is following nearby, ultimately moments away from fulfilling what Jesus would say about him and how he would deny Jesus three times, okay? Okay. So this is the picture that we get. Jesus standing before the high priest Caiaphas, standing before all the elders, and standing before his accusers, listening to what they have to say, all the while he is standing there, not saying a single word. He's not, he's not fighting back. He's not pushing back. He's not uh, rejecting what they're saying about him, but rather he is just listening. That's a sobering picture for our Messiah. And then finally, the high priest, Caiaphas, finally just gets tired of this situation. And he looks at him, and he blatantly asks him, he says, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And man, the answer Jesus gives Caiaphas is one that sends him and all the elders through the roof, right? For this is what Jesus responds. He says, I am. This guy who has been quiet this whole time, listening to the accusations, and when finally he is blatantly asked, are you the son of God? He says, I am. And he not only says that, he says, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on clouds with he- of, of heaven. As Mark uh, tells us in his account of the gospel. What a powerful moment. And this sends Caiaphas and all the high priests and or the high priest and the whole council into a whirlspin. Right? This sends them into just a, a giant frenzy. And they start tearing their clothes and they start uh, uh, call, they start condemning Jesus, saying that he is a blasphemer and that he is worthy of death. And then not only that, they then begins to spit on him and then to beat him in the council. Ultimately, sending him to Pilate. This is a crazy picture that we're looking at today. An innocent man, Jesus, the true Son of God, being falsely accused, beaten, spat on, and ultimately sent to a false trial for condemnation. So let's pick up here in chapter 27. We're going to be reading 11, uh, verses 11 through 26. So picking up here in verse 11, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear many things that testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the crowd, uh, to, for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, "'Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream.'" Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And, or to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, "'Which of the two do you want me to release for you?' And they said, "'Barabbas.'" Pilate said to them, "'Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ?' They all said, let him be crucified. And, and he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Will you pray with me? Father, Lord, we just come before you now recognizing that we all are sinners. We are all no better than the characters at play in in this narrative. So Lord, I just pray that as we walk through this passage this morning and as we gaze upon one of the most horrific but most beautiful deaths that we've ever witnessed in this life i just pray father that you will just truly reveal our own nature and our own hearts and how we view jesus and how we view our relationship with him because god he did not come into this world just to uh say good things and to and to heal people but god he came into the world ultimately to save the soul of man So, Father, if we just view Jesus as a good person and not as our Savior, I pray, God, that this morning that you would truly reveal that in our hearts. Because, God, there is so much more with a relationship with Jesus than just a good man. But he is our perfect Savior. So, Lord, I just pray that you will be with us this morning, that you will just speak through your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So, as we work through this passage this morning, I want us to take note of four different perspectives that we're going to see In this section of scripture. And the first perspective that I want us to look at is that of Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Rome and he was overseeing the region of Judea at this time. And the first thing I want us to really take note of in this situation where Pilate gets introduced is that uh, when they bring Jesus before him, this was very early in the morning for him. Some say that it was probably around 6 a.m. So you can only imagine the the tone that is being set right now with Pilate as he is just being woken up by a mod of, a mod or a, a mod a, a mob. There it is. That's the word. A mob of people bringing a man who is falsely accused to him and wants Pilate to sentence him. Can you imagine that situation? How about this? Teenagers. Can y'all imagine waking up at six o'clock in the morning with a mob of people trying to ask you to sentence somebody? Y'all be like, nope, mm mm-mm, okay? So, that's that's the setting here, is that Pilate is being woken up early in the morning by a mob of people so that he can judge this man. And after being debriefed of the situation, Pilate begins his own interrogation of Jesus. So he meets with the Jewish leaders, and he meets with all the elders, and he gets all the information about what is going on, and then he then goes and interrogates Jesus on his own. And Fully aware at this time that after hearing what the, uh, the Jewish leaders said, Pilate's fully aware of the intentions and why they brought this Jewish man before him. For he was not oblivious to the confrontations that had already taken place between the Jewish leaders and Jesus up to this point. And so Pilate then turns to Jesus and asks him, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And at this point, Pilate, in his mind, is probably thinking that Jesus is going to renounce this, right? He's probably thinking that surely this man, after everything he's been through, is probably going to renounce the fact that he's not the king of the Jews, so that way I can just let him go freely. But what does Jesus say? He says, he says this, he says, you have said so. That's not quite the response that Pilate was waiting for. In that moment, Pilate quickly realizes that he's not just on a typical Jewish trial. Because in that moment, Jesus declared to Pilate the sovereignty that he is now displaying over the situation. He is not refusing the title king of the Jews, but rather he is going along with it. He said, You have said so. And he is remaining bold. And so Pilate, again, like I said, is quickly realizing this is not going to be a typical trial, but rather this is going to be a sentencing of an innocent man wrongfully accused. So because of Jesus' response, it forces Pilate into a situation that he doesn't want to be in. It forces him and puts him into a corner that was not typical for him. Because Pilate, guys, let me explain something about Pilate. Pilate was not just this passive man who didn't really care about what was going on in the region. Pilate was a man who was hard, he was cold, he was a calculating man with a streak of of brutality. He was a pretty hard dude. He didn't put up with a lot. And so for him, this is not a situation for him that he wanted to be in. And especially when it came down to the Jews, Pilate did not want to put up with the Jews. He did not like the Jews. So. In this situation, for him to be backed into a corner by the Jews in regard to this innocent man, Jesus, he was not very happy about it. And Pilate was also very aware of all the Jewish customs and the culture. He was very aware of their beliefs, and oftentimes, Pilate deliberately offended them. That's how much he disliked them. So just to kind of give you a few uh, situations um, he would sometimes intentionally bring ensigns or banners of Caesar into Jerusalem, knowing that it would make the Jews mad because it would view it as idolatry. Intentionally aggravating the Jews. He would, at one point, also forcefully took money from the, uh, the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. Knowing that the Jews are going to be upset. And knowing that the result would probably uh, be revolting or rioting. So essentially, he went, took money out of the temple treasury to go make bathrooms. So you can only imagine how this made the Jews felt, or how they, how they would feel about it, right? So he knew very well the touchiness and the temper of the Jews when it came to their own beliefs and laws, and he knew just the right buttons to press in order to get them mad. So needless to say, he did not care much about maintaining a healthy relationship with the Jews. But as a result of all these confrontations that he had, it actually put him in the hot seat with Caesar back in Rome. And so in this moment, in this particular situation, he recognizes that this was a very sensitive, sensitive uh, trial. And that he had to handle this very carefully with Jesus. Because the last thing he needed was to cause another riot or revolt. Because then Caesar would come down harsh on him. Versus Pilate coming harsh down on the Jews. Y'all feeling me? So this is a very sensitive situation. So he can either let the innocent man, Jesus, go, or he could cause a uh, and cause another potential uprising, or he could try to appease the Jews and condemn this innocent man. And we ultimately see how that turns out, right? And so in verse 15 here, though, he says that now uh, he remembers, after all this, he remembers that, there is a, a, a custom or a custom that the, many of the governors have done in the past where they would release a prisoner from prison uh, of their choosing. And so, as a result of this sensitive situation, he remembers in the back of his mind, he says, Okay, so they brought this man before me. They want me to, uh, they want me to essentially condemn this man as guilty. But in the back of his mind, he remembered, But wait, I can bring Jesus up against this other guy. A prisoner, and let them choose between the two. So this, in, in the back of his mind, he thought this of an opportunity to get off, get off freely, right? And so he remembers that there's this notorious prisoner in prison that he brings out against him. But despite acknowledging Jesus' innocence and using his better judgment and the power to let him go, he now puts Jesus up against a guilty man. And, and at this time, though, this, this, I, this, this custom was considered to be an act of diplomacy to reduce tension between the nation of Israel and Rome. So this was not only just something to get him off the, off the radar, this is also uh, a strategic move for him to keep the peace. And so this is where we pick up there in verse 16, with, uh, where he says this, is in the, And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up to them. So Pilate, I'm sure it was, in his mind, in this situation, he thought it was a pretty obvious decision. Bringing Jesus, an innocent man, who the Jews once praised, up against a guilty, condemned prisoner who was up for execution. To Pilate, this was a very obvious decision. There was no second guessing this. So in his mind, he thought that this would get him off the radar, that he would that it would get him off the um, just away from this situation. But once again, the Jews and the mob stunned Pilate with their hatred towards Jesus. Thus, Barabbas enters the scene. So, which is the second perspective I want us to look at is Barabbas. Now, not much, know, not much is known about Barabbas, other than the fact that he was a robber and a thief, that he was a murderer, an insurrectionist, or a rebel leader, condemned for execution. And based off the limited details given in this uh, narrative, that's really all, there isn't much more that we need to know about him, other than the fact that he is just a bad dude, Right? And it should be an obvious decision that for the crowd to choose Jesus over Barabbas. But once again, we see the total depravity and sinfulness of man on full display here and how they choose Barabbas. And we ultimately see that in verse 20, where it says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. So once again, The nature of man is on full display here with how easily deceived we are and how easily persuaded we are to make the wrong decision. So what a picture we're given here, right? So the Son of Man is turned over to the hands of angry sinners, falsely accused, he's beaten and spat on for no reason, put on full display with a condemned prisoner, ultimately for them to choose from the two, right? So he is only, not only is he up against this prisoner, but he's considered to be guiltier than a murderer, an insurrectionist, or a rebel. And he's ultimately condemned by the Jews to be crucified. This is a crazy picture. All the while, Jesus continues to remain silent. So all this is happening, and Jesus is just standing there, choosing to remain silent. The Son of God, the one who could call a legion of angels down to save him, is choosing to remain silent in this moment. But ultimately fulfilling the words of Isaiah 53, 7. For it says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers, he is silent. He did not open up his mouth. So, you can only imagine, though, what was going through Barabbas' head. I don't know if you guys ever thought about that, but every time I read this account, I think about that. What is Barabbas thinking in this moment? Can you imagine how he was feeling? I mean, either he was super excited and relieved about the fact that he was no longer going to be executed, and that he was going to be released and go freely, right? Or it could be the opposite, He could be really confused and astonished by the actions of the people by choosing an innocent man whom they once praised over him who is condemned for multiple accounts of uh, breaking the law, right? It could be all the above. We don't know. But we can only imagine and speculate what was going through his head. And we can only imagine what it would look like for him to look into the eyes of Jesus in that moment as the crowd was chanting Jesus' name over his own. It would make me feel very small. I don't know about you guys. Something else that's very ironic about this situation with Barabbas is the meaning of the name Barabbas. Have you guys ever heard the meaning of the name Barabbas? Barabbas means son of the father. Some commentators suggest that this is just a mere title for Barabbas, and not his name, while some other manuscripts often refer to Barabbas as Jesus Barabbas. So how ironic is this picture that we have uh, these two men standing before the crowd, both both of them are Jesus, son of the Father. Except one is the Christ, and one is a murderer. This is a very bone-thrilling picture here, right? A bone-chilling picture. But as I said before, the, the true nature of man is revealed within the crowd at this point. And once again, who does the crowd choose? Man over God. It's pretty humbling. And we're not much different today. Oftentimes we choose man over God. But the third perspective that I want us to look at here was one that is a very short perspective, but it's ultimately a Pilate's wife. We see that in verse 19, where it says, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, talking about Pilate, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, obviously, there was something significant here in this moment that Matthew saw for him to write it down in his account. What's also pretty unique is that this is the only gospel that mentions Pilate's wife. So obviously, again, Matthew, being the detailed disciple that he was, saw that there was something significant here for him to take note of. And he wrote this account down. And this is not an ironic situation for, her, for Pilate's wife to come to him, for she had very critical information regarding this man towards Pilate that he needed to hear. Now, there's no evidence or context to show to, for us to see that maybe she had encountered Jesus beforehand or that she had a personal relationship with Jesus. There's no context of that. She had never encountered this man before. She had only had this dream. However, both her and Pilate were not oblivious to the works and the message of what she was teaching. Because you can imagine that Pilate as governor, hearing about a man who's going about healing people and teaching and proclaiming this truth that is setting people free, this is a man that he needs to be mindful of. This is a man that he needs to keep a close eye on. Now, I don't know about you guys, if we heard about a man like this in Columbus today, I'm pretty sure all you guys would be following him on Instagram or Twitter or whatever he's on. Right? So they're not oblivious to what Jesus has been doing at this time, and they're not oblivious to the gossip and the rumors about a Jewish carpenter from a small town of Nazareth bearing the title King of the Jews. That's a huge fly for Pilate. When you, that, when you hear that word King, especially as a Roman governor under the King Caesar... That's a huge flag for him. So they're not oblivious to this. So why did she have this dream? Was it for the purpose of convincing Pilate to let Jesus go? Was it for the sole purpose of her to come to come to know Jesus in a very personal way? Was it so that Pilate can come to know Jesus and open Pilate's eyes about Jesus being the Messiah? We don't know. We can only speculate. But all we do know is that it was imperative enough for her to go interrupt a trial that she would never do. This is not a common practice by Pilate's wife to go interrupt a trial. But this, this dream was significant enough for her to go and to interrupt this trial, to warn her husband not to have anything to do with this man, for he is innocent. This is a very profound moment. And Matthew saw that, and that's why he wrote it down here. And there's so much that we can learn from her in this moment. Because we see here the heart's desire for her to intervene on her husband's behalf. She loves her husband so much that she's willing to step in on trial, to uh, step in and intervene on his behalf so that she can try to protect him. How often do we do that for our loved ones? How often do we do that for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Not often enough, in my opinion. And I'm just as guilty of that. But the other thing I want us to take note of in this moment is that not only are we seeing how much she loves her husband and the fact that she wants to go interrupt this trial, but we're also seeing God being put on full display here as well. And you're like, how is that possible? Because what we're seeing here is that God is using Pilate's wife to intervene on behalf of his son, so once again, we see God pursuing man through, uh, through man himself, right? We see God choosing to love man so much that he is willing to do, what, even in the last moments, to try to intervene and to turn the decision away from Jesus, from Pilate, and from the crowd. And We see this time and time again throughout Scripture where man is walking wayward from truth, but yet God intervenes on their behalf and tries to bring them back to himself. We see the compassion and the love of the Father here in this moment as he is intervening through Pilate's wife on behalf of his son and on, for the sole purpose of man. It's a beautiful picture, and I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that before. I know that I never noticed it until now. But instead of Pilate heeding his wife's warning, we see that he would rather uh, fall upon yet another Jewish custom and to choose to let Barabbas go. And what I mean by that other Jewish custom is that there in verse 24 through 26 it says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood See to it yourself. So instead of heeding his wife's warning, he would rather fall back on man once again and man's customs rather than fearing the Lord and fearing the Son of God. Which leads me to the last perspective that I want us to look at, and that is the crowd. And as we look at the crowd here, what we're seeing in this account In this entire account, from the time that Jesus is arrested by the temple guards to the releasing of Barabbas and scourging of Jesus, it sums up and paints for us the total depravity and sinfulness of the heart of man from the day that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve until the time that Christ died on the cross. This entire picture of the crowd encapsulates for us the total depravity of man and how wretched we truly are all throughout history we've seen over and over again the unconditional pursuing love of the father to his people whether it was from God's blessed covenant with Abraham to him rescuing Israel out of Egypt to God leading his people through the wilderness by smoke and by fire and with great provisions or whether it was uh, God bestowing upon them the promised land bringing them into the promised land or how about God giving in and he's he hears their plea for bringing them kings and he provides kings for them to rule over them versus allowing him to rule over them right god rescues them time and time again all throughout history and he provides for them and he hears them and he pursues them all the while it is never enough for his people it is never enough. It wasn't enough that God made a covenant with them. It wasn't enough that God rescued them time and time again. It wasn't enough that God bestowed blessing upon them. It was never enough that, that God would dwell with them. And that he would lead them and guide them and, and pursue them. It was never enough. The nation of Israel always wanted more without giving up anything of their own. Who does that sound like? They just wanted a consumer relationship. All I want is what I want. I don't want to do anything for you. Just give me what I need. So what we're seeing here with the crowd in this passage is that this, is, this unjust trial for Jesus was not a trial for Jesus. This is a trial for man. And that's why Jesus remained silent. He, did, he knew that he had to remain silent to go throughout this process so that way he can go to the cross and redeem man for their sinfulness. Because in this moment, man just condemned himself. This was not a trial for Jesus, but this was a trial for man. And verse 25 sums that up and how what we see of that. And it says that, And the people answered after, uh, after Pilate washes his hands and chooses to release Barabbas, he says, uh, says this of the people, that his blood be on us and on our children. His blood be on us and on our children. That is, that is the heart condition of man in this moment. The people once again denied the power of God, ultimately bringing a curse upon themselves. And it's been that way ever since, and God fulfilled their curse. Many Jews today have are, continue to walk with blind eyes, rejecting the incarnate Son of God. They don't believe that He's actually come yet. But when the time comes for Him to return, they're going to be without excuse. They're going to miss it. Because they've missed the first Son, the first original Messiah. So as I said, what really happened this day with the crowd was that it was not just a trial for Jesus, but rather it was a trial for man. And they condemned themselves by condemning Jesus. So my question for us today is this, is is which shall we choose? Are we going to choose God or are we going to choose man? Are we going to be like the Jews in this situation? Are we going to reject the Son of Man? Especially as we go into this new year. And not about you guys, but as we've gone throughout this book, this has just been such a blessing to me. Time and time again, God has revealed himself to me in new ways all throughout this gospel. And that's humbling. I've read through this gospel so many times, but yet I, he's continued to reveal himself to me, right? And, and, and I hope he has been for you guys. He has shown his power. He has shown his wisdom. He has shown his sovereignty. His love, his compassion, his empathy, his mercy, his kindness. He's put on full display his righteousness, his glory, and his holiness. And he has also demonstrated his perfect timing. But most importantly, he has revealed and put on display for us the greatest gift that man has ever received. That is the Son of God, Jesus, our Lord. So again, what are you going to do with this gift? How are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to follow after the ways of man as we saw here in these four perspectives? Or are we going to choose the Son of God that's going to liberate us all from our sin? Now, I realize that walking after, or after walking through a passage like this, the temptation is to play the comparison game. You know, am, am I a Pilate? Am I a Barabbas? Am I a Peter? Am I a Judas? But I'm here to warn you guys today, don't play the comparison game. Because it's not a matter of if you're one of these people, it's a matter that we are all these people. We're every single one of these people. We all are a pilot. We're a man you know, who was a man of power easily persuaded by fear. He was persuaded from doing the right thing, refusing to maintain integrity and to stand up to truth with truth and with justice. We're all a Barabbas. We're all guilty, wretched men, condemned to death because of our own sins, that which we well deserve. But ultimately, we are set free from our sin and our death by no no merit of our own. Right? But rather, through the willing sacrifice of Jesus, the true Son of God, the Christ, we are set free from that. We all are Barabbas. We're all Pilate's wife. We all recognize the weight and significance of decisions that need to be made. We all understand the, the idea of us going and interceding on others' behalves. The question is, is just, are you going to do that? Are you going to intervene on others' behalf? Knowing that your voice may not seem significant in that moment, are you going to go and intervene? And ultimately, we all are the crowd. We all are people who follow their bellies Okay, we're all people who follow our bellies as our own God. We desire what we want and nothing else. We desire our own passions and our own salvation through the world rather than through the Savior, Jesus. We are our own stumbling blocks from true freedom and salvation. We are all of these. For as Romans 3.23 says, For all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No sinful act is greater than another. All sin is equal in the eyes of our holy and righteous God. So don't try to justify or distinguish your sins from others. For we are all sinners, and none of us are greater than the other. We all, guys, this is such a profound truth. We all need to tremble at the horror of our own wickedness. We need to tremble at the horror of our own wickedness in our lives and allow Jesus alone to restore us. Allow Jesus to restore us, not law, not the law, not man, not anything else in this world. For it all will fail, and it all will pass away. Now I said I, I was done with the perspectives, but there's actually one more perspective I want us to look at, and then I know, guys, it's 9:34. I'll wrap up. There's no Sunday school. It's fine. We can keep going. Um, and that last perspective is of Jesus. An innocent man wrongfully condemned. A man who was like a lamb to be slaughtered and re- who remained silent. A man who understood his mission and purpose in the world. For as, what, is, what does it say in John 3 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He understood his mission and his purpose and that in this moment was to remain silent. A man who looked into the eyes of Pilate after being questioned and said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. A man who loved us so much that he was willing to come down from his heavenly throne, born into this world as a baby, Uh, to do ministry with 12 uneducated men for three years. That would drive me insane. No offense, Victor. Um, Only to be handed over by the very man that he came to save, to be crucified on a cross, prepared for guilty sinners like you and I. This is the greatest perspective of them all. This is the perspective that we need to have. Is like that of Jesus. For it is through this one man, Jesus, and his wrongful but beautiful death that we now have salvation. If he had not remained silent, we would still be condemned, destined to face the full wrath of God of our, on our own. We would, this would be a much darker and dying world than what it actually is. But he remained silent, and he was beaten, and he was scourged and nailed to the cross, taking the full wrath of God upon himself, so that we would not have to experience it ourselves. Wow. It is through this one man, Jesus, the Son of God, that we can now gain a new perspective in this life. One that is of great strength, of humility, wisdom, power, and boldness. One of peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. One that gives us hope when we look into this dark and dying world. So again, which shall you choose? Are you going to choose the Son of Man who came to take away the sins of the world? Or are you going to choose man that will ultimately fail you and deceive you? Which shall you choose? So as we go into this time of invitation, I want us to be thinking about that and I want us to ponder in our own hearts where we are at today as we go into 2021 another year you know how it is at this time of the year there's so many new year's resolutions but this doesn't need to be a new year's resolution this needs to be an eternal resolution we don't need to question every year whether or not we're going to follow the Lord this needs to be a daily decision where we are going to sacri- or not to, we're going to surrender ourselves to the gospel every single day. So as we go, as I said, as we go into this time of invitation, I really want us to ponder in our hearts where are we at in our relationship with the Lord. Are we truly surrendering ourselves to Him every single day, or are we choosing to follow man? Don't follow man, people. It's a scary place to be. So will you pray with me? Father, Lord, we just come before you now, and we just, again, thank you for your word. For the fact that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. The fact that no matter how many times we read through it, Father, you continue to reveal yourselves to us in very real and new ways. But Father, most importantly, I just thank you for the ultimate sacrifice that you gave, your son Jesus. But the fact that he came, walked among men, did many miraculous things and healings and signs and wonders. Ultimately to be turned over, to be wrongfully accused, wrongfully tried. And ultimately to remain silent throughout this whole process so that way he could take on the full wrath of God on the cross. Not for his own purpose, but Father, for our own good. for For the sins of the world. God, we thank you for that. Because it's through this one man, Jesus, that we now have salvation. That we can be set free from our sin. So Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not understand this essential truth, I pray that you will reveal it to them. That you'll open up their eyes and their hearts to the nature of their sin. And how they need you to set them free from that sin. So God, I just pray that you'd be with us this morning. It's in Christ's name, amen.